your news program every morning with up-to-the-minute news and extensive analysis of issues from Korea and abroad. This morning with Alex Jensen on TBS EFM. Eight eighteen. Now, although we obviously have seen a global impact of Britain's decision to leave the European Union that did send shockwaves as far as Asia, we might ask ourselves whether in fact China uh, and its rise in recent years and continued rise, but also its own hiccups might have a bigger impact itself on global affairs. Brian Jackson is a senior economist at IHS Global Insight and joins us on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good to be with you, Alex. Great to have you here. So, I mean, everything from Brexit to the US presidential election, you can't talk about global affairs these days without getting onto the subject of China at some point in the discussion, whether it be because of trade, politics... Uh, regional diplomacy. Uh, but first of all, what sort of impact did Brexit have on China, the, just the decision of the British people to leave the EU? So we think the sort of medium long-term dis- uh, impact on China is relatively modest. Uh, the main channel that it'll be impacted through is through any kind of negative trade shock. And in that case, the UK actually isn't that significant. It accounts for a very, very small percentage of Chinese exports abroad. Um, but more importantly is that the EU is one of China's largest trading partners, accounting for about a fifth or so of Chinese exports. Um, so in, in that case, if that Brexit does negatively impact the EU, which we do think it will over a few-year period, uh, that is going to impact China's economy. But the impact we're talking about here is revising growth downward from, say, 6.4% next year to maybe 63 or 6.2%. So still a relatively small impact. China's issues are primarily domestic, and those are really going to remain the large negative drags on the economy. And whilst China didn't necessarily come up in every argument that was made for Britain to leave the European Union, there was this implication that Britain was tied down to the EU, that as the world's fifth largest economy, Britain wasn't able to to flourish somehow on the world stage, wasn't able to deal with the likes of China on its own terms. Uh, Is there a sense now that maybe Britain will be able to do that? Well, I think Britain had already attracted some significant uh, Chinese deals in the year or two before Brexit occurred, uh, which didn't necessarily involve other European countries. So I don't think that's necessarily um, the fairest way to frame the way things were prior to Brexit. But I think it's very clear that after Brexit, uh, that the UK is going to lobby very aggressively to secure some sort of trade or investment deals with large uh, partners that it no longer has sort of preferential access to via the EU, and that's certainly going to include China. Um, Of course, that's possibly going to be constrained by some within the UK, because part of Brexit as well is is all about sovereignty and sort of uh, economic nationalism. So that also is a concern. But when we go, for example, to the US presidential race, uh, as I said, you can't talk about such affairs without a mention of China. And you look at, uh, for example, statements by Donald Trump, it's become an internet meme, uh, how commonly Donald Trump refers to China. Uh, But how much of an impact does China really have on the politics of the United States? I think the impact is quite minimal when it comes to elections. And the reason I raise that is because Almost inevitably, 
both sides uh, within the U.S. will lambast China in some way or another during the election cycle, and almost inevitably they'll become friendly towards China once the person is actually in office. Um, So China is essentially an issue that you have only one thing you can say about during an election, and then things become much more pragmatic once you're in office. China, though, uh, it's not just about, um, of course, economics. It's about the South China Sea. It's about its movements uh, in in various waters and uh, its own created bodies of land. It's going to be this geopolitical rival to the U.S. It seems to be positioning itself as as such, certainly is rivaling the U.S. influence in this region. We can't steer away from China for very long, can we, when we talk about U.S. foreign policy? Uh, No, absolutely not. But what I would say is that uh, foreign policy and economic policy, while of course they have to align in some respect, um, it's possible for economic economic policy to advance even if there's some hiccups on the foreign policy side. So we see that, for example, right now, despite all of these issues in the South China Sea, uh, which are are very thorny, um, the U.S. and China are actually still negotiating a bilateral investment treaty, Mm. uh, which they're hoping to conclude by the end of this year. Um, So there we see just a current example of how, despite setbacks in one realm of the relationship, um, sort of uh, on the economic side, it's still possible to move forward in a relatively pragmatic way. Yeah, money talking and walking for itself, obviously. But is China actually doing okay? We, We spoke recently on the show with an analyst who was of the view that China's economy would already have collapsed, actually. So uh, the, the forecast was a little off that he made several years back, but he still believed that China was over-exaggerating its growth and potential and that uh, it was and had already effectively shot itself in the foot. What would you suggest? Uh, so I, I think China right now is sort of a multifaceted economy where you have some sectors such as mining or heavy manufacturing, which are, are genuinely in a very dire situation. And you have other sectors that are exposed to consumption, such as uh, light manufacturing, consumer goods, um, and certainly anything which is uh, sort of targeting services, which generally are doing much better. So that you have something of a two-speed economy. Um, so I, I think that you know, the characterization of the entire economy in collapse is an exaggeration. Uh, it certainly might feel that way if you're in a sector like coal, for example, which has been shrinking for four years in a row in China. Um, However, I think there's no doubt that, for example, aviation, e-commerce, et cetera, are growing extremely rapidly. So I think the main issue here with China is that it's become much more complex to analyze than, say, 10 years ago when it was basically construction, construction, construction. Anything related to construction, doing very well. Um, Now we have things that are doing extremely well or extremely poorly, uh, and your view is generally going to be very clouded depending on what your perspective is. What about the figures that Beijing provides for us? 6.7% growth, for example, in the first quarter of this year. Is that reliable? Is it credible? So we try to check this data, of course, uh, fairly fairly regularly to see sort of does the high-level data match up with the low-level data that's available. Um, And in general, the trends do match up. Um, You know, there might be the case that the official headline GDP number is off by some margin from what uh, sector-level data suggests. Um, but we don't see any signs of a systematic deterioration in the GDP figure compared to what it has been in the past. So this is all relative, of course. No individual has the power to sort of recreate GDP from scratch. That requires a legal mandate to collect so much data from every company in the country. Mm. Um, but what we can say is that 6.7% does seem to be consistent 
relative to say what 14% felt like in 2007. You know, the data do seem to match up in that way. So what we see here is that we don't know if that 6.7 is exactly right as a point estimate, but the change from 14 seven or uh, seven, you know, two, in 2007 to say 6.7 today, that seems to match up with the uh, low-level data. I, I talked before about the impact of China on various different global events. We haven't specifically touched on what's happening right here on our doorstep, though. Um, and how concerned would the United States be, for example, about countries like South Korea taking a, a much bigger interest in, in being aligned with this rising China? Well, I, I think that's one reason why we see that the U.S. launched this bilateral investment treaty that I mentioned earlier. They, they launched that actually in, the I believe, the summer of 2015. This is at a time when, for example, South Korea had either recently announced or was just about to announce the conclusion of their uh, sort of latest trade agreement with China, which includes a fairly significant investment category. ASEAN has an FTA, which they're upgrading to include investment um, at the moment. Uh, China signed a similar deal with Australia a year prior. Um, so what we see is that uh, Beijing, of course, does have uh, some political difficulties or frictions with its neighbors in Asia. Um, but what it's doing is trying to se- sort of secure those relationships with economic or essentially with financial ties through these kind of agreements to make sure uh, that economics is sort of what ultimately determines the relationship as opposed to the uh, political or uh, foreign policy side. Um, so we do see that the U.S. is responding to that. The, of course, U.S. businesses want to make sure they're not sort of uh, left out in the cold as China warms up to all of these other countries in Asia. And that creates a challenge for the U.S., but also an opportunity for countries in Asia. Brian Jackson, thank you for joining us. We've got to leave it there. Thank you. Brian Jackson from IHS Global Insight, offering us an insight into his thoughts on China and and actually a little bit more optimistic about China's prospects than some of the other analysts we've heard from. If you want to get in touch with us via email, you can. EFM this morning at gmail.com this morning continues in a few moments.